The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Nigan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Nigan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let. Welcome, everybody. Uh, as uh, I'm speaking to you now, we are about 30 hours uh, or so after the results of the Manitoba election became more or less confirmed. And as most people know by now, there's been a change in government. Uh, uh, Manitoba New Democrats, under the leadership of Wab Canoe, will now form government. Uh, Wab Canoe becomes the first First Nations uh, premier, first minister in the country. Um, so, you know, anytime that a government changes hands, it's a pretty seismic event. Uh, even for those people who don't vote, they should know that these kind of things affect a lot of lives. They're, you know, and it's not just a change in policy or direction, um, but it, it really is, uh, you know, a, a moment of, of transformation. And it'll take some time for us to tell exactly where the transformation is taking us, but it is a transformation. And one of the things, like those of us who work covering politics um, know uh, very intimately is that the people involved in politics are, in fact, people. I know it's hard to uh, sometimes remember that the these faces that we see on television and the and the people being quoted in the newspaper, you know, that uh, they they appear like characters in some weird, you know, reality show. No, they're real people. They have families. Uh, and it's also, I can say from, uh, not from firsthand experience, but from watching it, it is one of the toughest jobs in the whole world. Putting yourself on a ballot, getting elected, getting reelected, uh, taking on more responsibility. It's like, it's, it's really, really a, a big and difficult thing. And when that's taken away from you all at once, that is a huge and difficult moment in the life of, of uh, any person that's directly affected. And, um, you know, particularly uh, following an election where there were some pretty controversial narratives that came out. That's a really, really, really long way of, of welcoming uh, Rochelle Squires to the podcast today. Um, you know, many of the listeners of the podcast are going to know who Rochelle is. She is the uh, former uh, MLA for Riel, uh, Progressive Conservative uh, um, MLA. She is a former cabinet minister of multiple portfolios, most recently uh, families. Uh, she is a former deputy uh, pre- uh, premier. Um, and, uh, and I'm lucky enough to know that she's also... Uh, spent a much longer time in and around politics as a political staffer, and then before that as a journalist. Uh, and uh, today, uh, she is dealing with the reality of being a former, attaching former to MLA. And Rochelle, is that like, how, like, how are you dealing with the former part now? Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. And I think I said it best on my um, Instagram handle that I've revised, and I call myself a recovering politician. <laughs> that, well, that That is, an, and if you want, I can use recovering whenever sure. I refer yeah. to you. Yeah, that's great. Remember that there's a multiple step process with recovery. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, from election night, I mean, I think I think it's safe to say 
that you know this wasn't a uh, a shocking result. You knew you were in tough some mm-hmm. ways out. Yeah. Yeah. And let me just back up a little bit and start uh comment on something you'd mentioned in your in your segue. And that was about, um, you know, politicians are, are real people and people who put their names on the ballot are incredibly courageous. And um, I just really want to say to all the people who put their name on the ballot, and particularly in my constituency of Riel, Mike Moyes and Leamber Kensley for putting their names on the ballot, fighting good, good, fair, um, uh, you know, campaigns. And throughout the province, we had um, a lot of people who stepped forward and put their name on the ballot. And I, that's so important, because we are seeing instances where there is a decline in that. And, and that's something that's worth unpacking, not just now, but well into the future, what's causing the, um, the number, you know, what's causing the decline in the number of people that are willing to put their names on the ballot on a go forward basis. And then I also just want to touch upon the fact that uh, we all have families, and um, I'm eternally grateful for my family for sticking through all of this with me. And right till the very end, my husband uh, never let go of my hand and has been by my side, with the exception of about 12 hours yesterday to take all those lawn signs out of the constituency of Riel <laughs> and get them in my garage. I don't know what the next step is for those lawn signs, but he's he's on it, and uh, we're going to get those recycled as soon as possible. But um, I, I um, the the, the the payback for that service and that um, that comfort that my husband has provided is that assurance that uh, Rochelle Squires will not be on a ballot uh, for a very, very long time, if ever. And we are very uh, confident with um, this decision that we've made as a family that uh, I am finished with politics and I'm very honored. I had seven and a half years of service in a in uh, a capacity that so few people have had the opportunity to serve and um, this was my fourth election and um, I'm happy to see that all in the rearview mirror. Well just to talk about that I mean we talked briefly uh, before the podcast and I know that you're very emphatic and in the work that you've you know that you've done in the political world for at least the time being and and uh, I think that, oh, you know, that no one would blame you. You know, it's political. Politics is a tough game. And it certainly is. Uh, it's not even really a game. We're talking about people's real lives here. And, and uh, certainly, I wonder what the next steps are for you. But um, would you have a chance to sort of feel that uh, Equal Voice put out a report uh, just today? And what they announced was that there was more female gender diverse candidates more people from BIPOC uh, from different ethnic minorities I mean you're the former minister of the status of women uh, for culture and heritage Um, I mean you have to take a little bit of credit I think for the fact that Manitobans were certainly open Mm -hmm. to voting in uh, women and uh, gender diverse racial candidates uh i mean your track record if you look back i know it's real early but uh you you've got to take some credit in saying that manitoba's made a big statement in all the different political parties on uh, the other night absolutely and i always said that um when i left politics if there were more women and gender diverse people in politics than when i entered i would feel as though um, that was a success and that I would be um, very pleased knowing that I played a small part in that and really, really excited to see the diversity of, of candidates that have put their name forward 
And I, I certainly think that we have a long way to go. And when I was elected in 2016, it was um, the landscape has shifted quite significantly since then. And you're absolutely right. And again, that we've we've uh, done some. We've taken a small step forward, and more more of that needs to to be um, gained. But I I feel as though that um, that Manitobans will will anticipate a movement forward in that regard. Well, I can say one thing, you know, and um, I told this to your face off camera, I'll do it on the record here, uh, that as someone who's worked with you and someone who uh, my father has spoken very highly of you and and those of us in the Indigenous world uh, look to your work and, and uh, you know, one thing that I that I've always been very impressed by is your commitment to including people in from diverse opinions and ideas and, and particularly from different experiences, gender diverse and, and females and, and uh, those of us from the indigenous community. I mean, your record speaks for itself. And, and I think that uh, you have lots to be proud of. And I think that you, there's, you know, we don't often, I think, talk in that way. We, you know, if you're from a different political party, you might say, Oh, well, there's no victories here or, I think there's there is a victory here for uh, someone who's worked very long for seven and a half years to try to build up, uh, particularly the role of women and and you know and all of us uh, I think are thinking about Manitoba in a different way, particularly in the past forty eight or thirty hour, thirty hours, as Dan pointed out. So I just uh, miigwech to you for that. Thank you. That just means so much, and I'm uh, eternally grateful for your kindness and and your friendship. So. The 2023 campaign, I mean, I honestly believe that, you know, if I want to do this correctly, I should leave journalism for a while. I should go do a PhD in political science and I should study it deep, you know, like like all the dynamics of the campaign, because I believe I think the technical term uh, uh, that we use in the journalism business is that this was the damnedest campaign I think that I've ever seen. And I, I think as well. It was a campaign, uh, you know, the progressive conservative campaign was a campaign that we, <laughs> I had really trouble associating with people like you and other people that I know in the party and have known for a really long time. So, you know, let, let's have your frank assessment, uh, both of what the campaign became, but also, uh, if you can talk a little bit about how this campaign was revealed to you. Because you were like very much on the front line. You were one of the faces that the party wanted out there uh, selling major planks. Um, but I, I don't think I'm, I'm, uh, I'm wrong in suggesting that you, when the, before the campaign started or at the beginning of the campaign, really had no idea of which direction this was going to go. No. Um, and listen, First and foremost, I want to say that I take responsibility. I was a candidate in that campaign, and I was a member of that government, a senior member of that government, um, and uh, certainly take responsibility. I'm not here to to shift blame um, or or point fingers. That's not that's not anything that I uh, intend on doing. What I wanted to do was send a, a clear message to a lot of people who care deeply about not just the Progressive Conservative Party of Manitoba, but really the, um, the, the function it plays in democracy. You can't have a, an effective government without effective opposition. And right now they have to form um, a solid opposition. And they, they need to determine how they're going to do that and 
what what it's going to look like and what its identity is going to be. So in speaking out about um, some of the pivots that I'd felt were misguided at at best and atrocious at worst, um, I'm not I'm not trying to deflect blame from myself and say I'm I'm blameless in this. Um, I think everybody who is part of that progressive conservative campaign needs to uh, do some soul searching and look themselves in the mirror and say what what happened and and what what role did I play in it and, and I certainly do that and take that that on myself. Um, so campaigns are are just very um, I. The four campaigns that I've participated in since 2011 to now, um, there has been a shift, which I think is parallel to a shift we're seeing in higher offices, which is a concentration of unelected power. And I think that, you know, you've all heard the phrase, the boys in short pants, in um, whether you're referring to uh, the PMO or the premier's office, all throughout the country, there's that concentration of power. And the elected officials are, um, you know, the, the cabinet table and the caucus table are not always the most powerful tables in any government. And they should be. That is where the decision should be made, at those two tables with the elected officials. And I, I, I see um, a pivot away from that. Um, and then that, that leads itself to I think a pivot where campaigns would be run a little bit more independent of the elected body because of that concentration of power amongst unelected people. So if I can kind of fill in some of the blanks in this, because it's a, it's a narrative that I wrote about in the lead up to the election campaign, but very early on, like months and months and months before the, the dra- uh, the uh, writ was dropped, it became uh, apparent that, um, uh, members of the campaign team were very much involved in advising the premier and um, even possibly even shaping government policy well in advance. And there was a moment when uh, the chief of staff and the uh, clerk of the executive council, Phil Hood and Don Leach, were sudden, very suddenly uh, relieved of their duties. And, uh, you know, and you, you can tell me if I was off base with this, but the the story that emerged from from my sources in your party were that this was the influence of at that time Marnie Larkin and uh, Michael Diamond, who had been advising the premier on the campaign, and that there was a, a growing concern in your party that they were becoming they had the premier's ear and possibly uh, diverting attention away from the normal channels to cabinet and caucus on, on government stuff. Is that way off base or? You know? Again, that's, that's, um, in keeping with that concentration of power outside of the elected officials yeah. tables. Yeah. So the, the budget that your party delivered in March, um, uh, even uh, members of the NDP said that they interpreted it as Heather's, uh, Duff Roblin budget, restore government services, build things, you know, very much a, you know, government has a role to play in people's lives. The, the, the theme of the campaign seemed to be a long way away from that. Mm-hmm. Parental rights, uh, was certainly a, a huge diversion away, uh, in terms of the narrative. The, um, the weaponization, my word, not your word, of the decision not to search the landfill, 
um, which nobody had any idea would become a major campaign theme. When did you, honestly, when did you start to pick up a sense that the party was going to pivot? It's, it's really its brand, its entire brand. The last two weeks were incredibly challenging. There was no no doubt about it that um, that the campaign was off the rails, if you will. Um, and even even before that, it there were there were certainly signs of of um, that pivot and and concern about the um, the 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 road that we were going down. And and, and I mean, I I I get the um scenario that we were under i mean mm-hmm. we were we were a government that had had gone through some incredibly challenging times we'd had a, a really challenging past 4 years mm-hmm. governing through probably one of the toughest times in contemporary manitoba history with the pandemic and we were definitely you know struggling and um I think that the budget that we delivered last year, when I think about some of the the contributions that my department had made to that budget and the the takeaways that we got to deliver moving forward with um, you know the hundred and four million dollars more for people uh, with disabilities and and solidifying that sector, uh, coming up with that homelessness strategy. Um, moving the women, the status of women mm-hmm. secretariat from um, just being, you know, a status of women to gender equity Manitoba and signing on to that national action plan for ending gender based violence, which also um, made uh, available pots of money for other uh, initiatives, including funding uh, Pride Manitoba mm-hmm. and the Rainbow Resource Center. And so those were things that we were doing as a government right up until I I honestly can't remember with certainty, but I think probably my last cam, um, last government announcement was at the Rainbow Resource Center in July, where um, we were funding the the housing project and the the cultural center that they're building on Broadway, and so that was where the road the government road ended, and then. Um, we went into a campaign that just was really um, challenged from the beginning. There's a really notable announcement uh, about a week or so before the writ drops, uh, where uh, the party, uh, the Conservative Manitoba Progressive Conservative Party, comes out uh, and they make an announcement when it's um, around rights for parents. And uh, the four new rights were about curriculum, uh, addressing bullying, uh, to have any notice about presentations by people outside the school system, and then consent before an image of a child is made or stored, which in lots of different ways uh, don't appear that uh, controversial. Uh, Maybe the one around presentations uh, might be a little bit uh, notable or maybe ruffle some feathers. But just using the term parental rights... Uh, draws in a lot of stuff that's happening in other places, and most notably uh, Saskatchewan most recently by Scott Moe using the notwithstanding clause to try to evoke and push through the idea of parental rights, which is absolutely directly in Saskatchewan and New Brunswick and other places around the issue of pronoun use and uh, talking about the issue of LGBTQ young people who wish to self-identify. 
what's your what was your place or what was your reaction to to this uh, particularly thinking your track record on supporting lgbtq communities and, and the fact that uh, maybe on one level and we've had we had conservative members of the party who came in and said this is not about lgbtq we got to stop making it about this but it, i mean it clearly was yeah i mean any time we talk about parental rights you're drawing upon that issue that's happening elsewhere uh what was your feeling around that yeah, that's uh, that's certainly something that is going to be unpacked for quite some time. And, and I, I, I do believe that the conversation uh, needs to happen because there is a gap between some uh, some groups in society and um, around this issue. And there there are parents who have said, I feel very disconnected from what happens in the school when my kid goes there. And, um, you know, I'll just use an example from my own personal life. My, my nine year old grandson, he had experienced a bullying situation at school and, and, um, he wasn't, uh, he didn't want to, you know, he's embarrassed about it. He didn't want to talk about it at home. And it kind of came out a little bit later. And then my, um, his parents were wondering, you know, how did they not know about this a little bit earlier? That is, um, an experience that I've heard many times from parents in uh, in my constituency and um, that have, have come forward and voiced uh, an opinion about this. And so I do believe there needs to be a conversation if parents feel that strongly, that they're not informed um, of instances like that. And then the, the, the image sharing piece also is something that probably needs to be looked at because 30 years ago when the Parental Rights Act was developed and and written, it was not, um, you know, there was no such thing as digital image sharing. And so, and and anytime there's a group of, uh, there's a disenfranchised group, particularly when we're talking about kids, there needs to be a coming together moment of discussion, a real honest dialogue without ideology and certainly not on a campaign trail. So that is where I think the conversation got lost because you're not going to be having any kind of non-ideological conversation. It is going to go to, to those places. And, and I, I, I regret that, uh, that narrative went to that place. So the, I think the it, because the it was the term parental rights that was the first issue of concern because that is a banner, particularly used in the United States, uh, to describe a very aggressive and uh, uh, very sort of right of center attack on you know the don't say gay sort of uh, movement. Um, so I'm wondering, like you know, not to to um, refute the idea that there may have been a couple of common sense things in there but the thing what distinguished this announcement was that it was not it wouldn't be explained mm-hmm. so we know parental rights evokes uh, a lot of ugly stuff the the premier seemed to be unable or unwilling to say any more although she did acknowledge that you know forcing school staff to identify children uh, that wanted a, a, you know to uh, be identified as a gender other than their, their birth gender, that that was definitely part of the discussion. So 
is there any like even though there may have been some very common sense things in there are are you convinced though that this was this was a play to curry favor in in some some very extreme quarters of the mm-hmm. the electorate mm-hmm. Certainly do think that there needed to be a lot more unpacking of the intent uh, besides what was offered on the campaign trail. And um, certainly I, I think that if there was that um, that desire to move forward into that area, that it needed to be explained. Um, and then uh, people could rightfully or make an, make an, uh, an opinion about it, make a comment about it and say whether or not they're going to support it or not. And I don't think that that information was even available to um, to candidates, never mind the constituents but who were asked to vote on it. Am I, were we wrong in interpreting that, though, as a deliberate decision, a decision to kind of, you know, tempt the more extreme quarters of the electorate and uh, but p- provide some plausible deniability for the moderates, I possibly, guess. I think I think that's that's a polite way of putting it in the sense that there was, um, uh, you know, it was it was like a double double edged sword or a double entendre, yeah. and uh, there again in 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 government, you you need to understand that for every every you know action, there's a reaction. For every decision, there's there's consequences, and uh, it was just. That, I believe, was very unfortunate, a very unfortunate uh, pivot and a very unfortunate um, message to put out there. And um, I, I, I rightfully think that Manitobans will be talking about that for some time. And I certainly think that um, that conversation does need to be had for those who do feel disenfranchised, because there's nothing worse than fear uh, to to create um, this extreme environment where we don't want to live. And so mm-hmm. I think that conversations definitely need to be had. Um, and if people are feeling that they're not heard or they're feeling um, disenfranchised or there needs to be a forum for that, and uh, but it certainly is not on the campaign trail. No, for sure. The last two weeks of the provincial election in 2023, I think, are going to be talked about for years uh, for probably the main reason, which is this um, very stark uh, moment in the party, in the Conservative Party around the issue of the landfill. And it's something that has to be talked about. Um, and it's hard to talk about it because we are talking about human beings here and we are talking about the remains of human beings and the family of... Uh, Morgan Harrison, Mercedes Myron, and of course, Buffalo Woman that potentially could be at that site as well. Uh, it's hard to talk about these things, but we kind of have to when we talk about the final weeks of this campaign. And it certainly was something that defined uh, in a kind of ironic moment, uh, a lot of things. And uh, we ran a poll at the Free Press, and I'm sure no doubt you heard about it. And uh, that the on, you know, the last week of September, September 25th, uh, we found that at the, in our poll numbers that 45% of Manitobans generally didn't support searching the landfill. Um, 30% was a very hard no, and, and 15% were a uh, want to go in another direction, but sort of is are unsupportive of it. And then, of course, 47% supported uh, with uh, that fairly hard, uh, similar amount of 30%. So it was a very split issue in Manitoba, uh, but... 
the choice of the party, your party was to go very hard against the landfill and the famous phrase of stand firm against the landfill and then frame this as an issue of making a hard decision. Uh, were you aware uh, that the Conservative Party was going to go in that direction? And then uh, if so, uh, was there a reason around the polling? Was it that in an approach to a, to really appeal to that 30, that hard 30? Or was it an appeal to try to get those moderates, which would have been 32% or so, so 15% unfavorable, 17% sort of favorable. Uh, was it an attempt to try to appeal in some way? Is that what the attempt of that campaign was? I can't say what the intent was because I wasn't part of the decision-making process or um, even in the room when the decisions were made for that campaign. And I I wasn't aware of the poll. I... I um, only read it sort of after the fact mm-hmm. um you know keep in mind that i was uh in a you know in a very tight hotly contested campaign and was keeping myself very uh, occupied with what was happening in real and was popping up every now and then to do um you know other announcements on behalf of the campaign and so when the ads appeared i i at first didn't I didn't really know what people were talking about. And then I sat down and read a few, um, went, looked on social media and found out what, that's how I learned about the, the billboards on Pemina. I think it was your column, Dan, yeah. talking about the billboards on Pemina that people would be driving by as they were going to um, a the bomber The Bomber yeah. Games uh, National yeah. Day of Reconciliation celebration yeah and uh so that was you know leading up to that is when i was being made aware and and it was um a deeply regrettable moment on the campaign that i i really do think was a pivot and i know that it took so many people by surprise um myself included uh, who were really on um just just so so ashamed of of that ad campaign so i think in politics um you know we we come to understand it that like people get involved in it they're in it to win it right like it's and you know the the great reward of a career in politics is a chance to govern and and change things um there i think the suggestion has been made that this was a desperate strategy that it was sort of a Hail Mary or a last-ditch strategy. Um, there were a lot, you know, your government was carrying a lot of baggage uh, from the Pallister years. In general, do you think the campaign was fair to candidates? I mean, all of you fighting, particularly in Winnipeg, was it fair? Did they, you know, did, like, did, did the central campaign seem concerned about the loss of seats in Winnipeg, because we know that it landed with a thud. Like, help me understand here, like, you know, was this a fair campaign for, for what you were trying to do? I think campaigns are, are um, you know, there is there is that centralization of, of power, that concentration of power. You don't have all 57 candidates weighing in on a platform or weighing in on, on a strategy or, or a campaign. And... Um, you know, campaigns are until you've actually been through it. You don't 
you may not understand it, but it's when party politics is very team orientated. You you get involved in a party, you buy that membership, you decide to take that next step to put your name on the ballot, and you're kind of along for the ride. And you are there um, to to be part of a team. And it's you know politics and sports is one of those areas where when you join that mm-hmm. team, you you surrender your your identity and some of your own free thoughts and you it can't be you, you can't run a com- campaign on consensus yeah. like there have to be leaders in the, exactly yeah. and so um what i've seen over the course of of time is that um that has that has definitely uh taken less input from candidates and more decisions are being made outside of of um the sort of g- larger room where the mm-hmm. candidates are are being exposed to the messages and the um, the you know the strategy, if you yeah. will. Uh, by way of comparison, I I can say my experience in the 2016 campaign. Well before we we got on the campaign trail, we were given a, a preview of the commercials, and there was that one commercial that ran. Uh, it was about the PST increase, and we all saw that at um, a campaign meeting prior to getting to the writ drop, and that certainly was not an experience that we had in in um, in this in this campaign. As as the as parental rights manifested as the, you know, and we talked again before coming, uh, you know, before starting to record. You know the what I call the weaponization of the landfill site, but turning it from a difficult decision into like a, you know, I'm still looking for the right word to to describe what it was the party was trying to how they were trying to use that. But certainly, the the very the the very difficult decision that the premier made, and then turning around and kind of using that as a positive attribute, um, you know, as I understand it. You you know because you spent a lot of time knocking on doors uh, you mm-hmm. know through the campaign, yeah. but two things happened. One was you really started to get a very visceral reaction from people in your constituency, and number two was that if that prompted you to make a decision about your participation in the central campaign. Mm-hmm. So walk me through you know how you got to a point where you had to make your own personal decision. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've done in the last seven and a half years is I've made numerous announcements regarding um, advancing um, women's equality and measures to reduce gender-based violence. And I I think the hallmark for me personally was in the 19 election, I ended off the campaign making an announcement on Claire's Law, Mm -hmm. which now um, in our term in office, we were able to bring in that uh, legislation and it is actually going to be um, uh, signed. It'll it'll come into force upon proclamation in November. And I'm very, very excited that we will have a, a version, a new generation of Claire's Law in the province of Manitoba. And so in thinking about um, those, those issues, and because I carried a lot of water, if you will, um, on campaigns uh, past, particularly on, on women's issues, it was um, a given that in this campaign that would be some of the, you know, any announcement regarding domestic violence, I would I would lead. And so I was supposed to lead a campaign announcement in the final week 
before polls closed about um, more money for the women's shelters and domestic violence uh, shelters. And um, I I was not willing to do that. I, I pulled out and, and said I was not going to be doing that announcement. And I didn't attend any more party uh, campaign style events after that, if you will, and and just uh, really had to make a decision of how do I stay in this campaign for another you know week to ten days um, and do the right thing, knowing that I'm a candidate, I'm I'm part of a team, I've signed up for this, I'm leading a group of people who have committed so much to this campaign. I had had volunteers that had been with me for for weeks on end by that point mm-hmm. who were um, out walking the door, walking uh, to the doors every day with me. How do I how do I tell them that we're folding up shop 10 days before mm-hmm. the election? How do I um, how do I carry on and and um, I had to have some some real soul-searching moments do I get up and go through the motions and and see this campaign through to the end and that's certainly what I what I did and and um, while the results on Tuesday night were nothing that anybody likes to live through or experience there was an unburdening mm-hmm. yeah the and I think as well your your decision to kind of pull out of campaign events um, uh, which I'm sure, quite frankly, was not a positive de- development for the campaign. I mean, they did in the first half of the campaign, they relied on you quite heavily. Um, but th- it was, you were getting, as I understand it, on the doorstep, you were getting real time feedback on the, on the campaign and, um, some pretty visceral reactions from the doorstep. You know, people asking that they're sign- trying to return their signs whatever like for people that, and you've represented them for seven years people in your riding that, that must have been a really tough experience was that part of what went into your decision to just not be part of the central campaign and just focus on trying to make some sort of a connection with your constituents oh absolutely I, and it was it was challenging to go to the doors and I wasn't the only um, candidate in this election who would go to the doors and and not have a an answer not I'm not even going to try to come up with a, an answer and a justification any reasoning and what was even worse what was worse were the people who didn't say anything but you you just knew that they were they were not even going to waste their time waste their breath to tell myself and other candidates how despicable it was you know, because and I do know, and I actually know a lot of elected officials that are this way. Like they are deeply, deeply beholden to the people who vote and, and you know put them into elected office. Um, you know, I it, like it. It must be uh, it must be like a, a a very disheartening feeling to think that your credibility, your cachet with your own constituents has been was been eroded um was do you think that that relationship suffered more in the in the years leading up to the election 
or uh, do do you think you still you had a um, you were a candidate that they could support before the campaign made the pivot? In other words, did the did the campaign drive the last stake through through your mm, chances? No, I think we were facing an uphill battle from the get go. We certainly had a lot of challenges in the last four years, and even going back even longer, like the last. Um, you know, leading up to the 2019 election, we had um, an erosion of support. And uh, my good friend and one of my political mentors, Calvin Gertzen, says it best about, you know, when, the longer you're in government, it's like picking up stones and putting them in a, ba- in a backpack. You make a decision, and any decision that you make is going to have your um, opponents and your and your your um, you know people that are pleased with that decision, and so you're you're always you're losing political capital every day of your existence. You get elected, and on day one you're losing your political capital until you've got no more capital left in the bag. And I would say that you know personally, I'd felt that we'd lost quite a bit of political capital. In the in the year, in, in the lead up to the campaign, I didn't go into the campaign with a with a position of strength or confidence, and um, um, but it's, so it's it's hard to pinpoint what point what was the turning point in um, in going from having a successful run to to facing defeat. It's really hard to to say it was that particular moment and this is when the erosion occurred. I think it was you know, successive errors and, and steps and missteps along the way that had led to, to that. Did people change their mind or stay home in the last two weeks that would have otherwise come out to support us? Quite possibly. And that's something I'll never know. Yeah. I deleted that. I never actually had the database on my phone just because I had other people that had that, but we, uh, the we voter were, ID, the voter database. ID, yeah, yeah, the voter ID. So, um, we've, we no longer have access and I didn't do any kind of analysis at mm-hmm. the end. So I don't know how much of my vote I actually pulled out out of the ID supporters. Well, and, I, I, and I just, vote. just before Ningan comes in with a question, I do want to note that you pulled almost as many votes this election as you did in 2019. You were within striking distance of that number mm-hmm. and that your, but your writing had almost the highest turnout in the province. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like just an extraordinary, you know, result for the NDP, like a result they had never seen, even in the years that they won the seat back in Gary Dewar's years, they never got 61, 6,200 votes. So there was something else going on other than Rochelle Squires in, mm-hmm, in that, sure. in that result. Yeah. And I, I certainly do think that yeah, we, my we... opponent, he had campaigned very hard and he ran a, a very solid, solid campaign. He was very dedicated to that campaign. There's no doubt about it. And I certainly wish uh, Mike Moyes all the, the success in the world as he represents Riel. We speculated that uh, there was either polling data or uh, certainly some moment, some decision, perhaps with the boys in short pants that you talked about earlier, that uh, Heather Stephenson just abandoned Winnipeg and uh, certainly didn't want to come on our podcast. It was the only leader not to come on our podcast to not do major interviews with. I, I think uh, we can, just yeah, make, we can make, say now that that was a huge mistake. Right. But <laughs> sorry. That's a big tipping point. Yeah. But, you know, in, it, it is highly ironic 
uh, and I can say I can with absolute certainty across uh, indigenous circles that I was tra- that I travel in that uh, she was going to First Nations uh, and hearing directly from young First Nations people. There was a really remarkable moment up north where. Um, she was going to First Nations communities and they were literally holding stands and silent protests against her arrival. And, and, but yet she chose that over facing Winnipeg voters. And I think that's, there's something going on there. There was some, some unknown story that perhaps, uh, we won't ever know about, but there's a decision there to, as you said, to, there was kind of a failure in communication or an end to communication that there was a decision made to just go to the rural areas or go to maybe the base 30% and, and end up in these First Nations that you're not going to win, but then somehow to try to recover Winnipeg by appearing in a First Nation. Um, I'm not sure what the strategy is there. We may never know the story. Um, but you, you came out in the past 24 hours. Uh, you've come out to say that uh, where or how or what does the progressive part of the title, uh, what does that look like now? And um, and I guess the question that I want to ask you here is, you've said that the party needs to decide. Does it want to pivot right? These are your words now. And lose the progressiveness in the title. And if so, then be honest about it. Um, where does the party go from here? And what do you foresee in uh, the the term progressive in the progressive conservatives? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Certainly one that I think will be answered by uh, by people other than myself. And and I've really, um, I wish everyone well as they grapple with that decision and and for me my um, part of my bargaining with myself and my and my husband and my family was getting to October 3rd whatever the outcome that was that was the end of the line for for me and and if um, I would accept the what the voters had to say and and then we would be moving on so I I won't be um, a partisan in the trenches helping the party identify itself so I, I think I can say with all honesty that there is a real um, opportunity for the party to decide what it wants to be. And there there are voices in the party that are definitely for keeping the progressiveness in the party. And then there were there are a lot of voices that are not interested in having that part of the party. And those people need to get in the room and and sort that out. And uh, obviously, I would like to see the Progressive Conservative Party become even more uh, more progressive and really embrace uh, some of the directions that the government, the Progressive Conservative government, had made in the last uh, seven seven years in in regards to some of the positionings, some of the um, the. The positions that we took, the policies that we created, the legislation that we drafted, and the initiatives that we funded. Having said that, if there's the other side of the party that isn't in favor of, for example, the renaming of the status of women's secretariat to be Gender Equity Manitoba, if people aren't comfortable with that, um, and if the party decides that that's something that they are not in support of, then they need to be honest about that and be who they are and so that we don't have the mixed messages that we saw in the last um, you know, three months. Because it's not fair to candidates, it's not fair to 
um, the voters. It's not fair to the the, the stakeholders that we that we uh, represent and that we befriend. I mean, in in office, you become friends with stakeholders who begin to rely on you for your word and they think, oh, we can go to this party, this governing party and expect to be treated with, um, you know, with these principles as, as uh, you know, just givens on the table. And then for those stakeholders to be uh, upended at the end, if you will, would is not fair to them either. And so if, um, you know, the, the party wants to have these conversations about uh, whether or not they want to really own and embrace all that those parental rights encompass, have that conversation. Just be honest about it. If they want to um, pivot to the right, whether it be, um, you know, there's a myriad of issues that need to be um, decided on in a policy room, whether or not we're going to continue supporting pro-choice values, whether we're going to continue funding uh, pro-choice initiatives, whether we're going to continue funding abortion services and, in fact, increasing funding for abortion services, whether we're going to uh, talk about the the safe injection sites and its purpose in society, talking about the need to um, work with the most vulnerable and disenfranchised in a way that may not be palatable for um, others that that have more um, opposing views, and those need to be thrown out on a on a convention floor, and really talked about, and then uh, be be made uh, public so that the the public can actually decide and know who they're dealing with. Well, uh, you say uh, resolutions on the party platform floor, but I think some elements of the party might say that the leader gets to decide that and, and it's not the party that you can make recommendations to the leader but that the leader ultimately gets to decide i mean certainly we saw that in the recent uh, conservative federal uh meetings um but i, I want to ask one more question here and it has to do with uh, the progressive side uh there's a reason that the people's party of canada uh, believes that they could win a seat at some point in the future in manitoba Maxim Bernier ran in Portage La Prairie and and really believes that there's an element, there's a hard right element that uh, is based on the kind of social conservatism uh, that is based in some of those questions around progressivism that you're talking about. Um, was the Keystone Party something that the party wanted to? Did they? Was there really a fear around that that there there had to be some kind of uh, turn towards that rather hard element or an appeal to the hard element of the party or the social conservative side of the party uh, that really needed to be dealt with or needed to be uh, taken care of and appealed to. And that might explain some of the hard social conservatism that took place in the campaign. Well, I, I don't really know or understand um, how that thinking could really, you know, penetrate deep into the party conscious because as as an urban MLA as somebody who um, understands the the constituents that I served and so many of my other colleagues who represent you know certain constituencies it's not a it's it's not a hard discussion it's it's quite an easy conversation we know that our that our constituents they they like moderate centrist ideas they don't they don't want um, a, a 
you know, they don't want the, the negative ads. They don't want um, some of these um, topics to be front and center. And so um, it's not really, you know, it's not hard to see, look at the lay of the land and see what, uh, what constituencies um, will swing based on those types of policies coming out. And, and the, 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 the rural part of the province, which I've never, rep, ne- never represented in a, in a constituency type relationship, but as a, as a minister, I've traveled to much of Manitoba. And at the end of the day, we're not going to lose Emerson or, or uh, southeast or southwest constituency if we um, don't, you know, put up a, if we put up a, cam- a campaign platform that will be palatable in Winnipeg. I don't believe that. I just do not believe that we have to pick one or the other. I think that to be a true big tent party, and that is, you know, what I always strived to create and and like to believe I was part of, was uh, a party that could have room for that that you know, opposing views and differing opinions. And I, I, I hate to say this because I'm, I'm an eternal optimist, but maybe society has become so divisive. Maybe the cracks have widened that there is no such thing as a big tent party anymore. And I'm not saying that that is true. I want to be proven wrong. I do believe that Manitoba can have a big tent party. I believe that the progressive conservatives can be a big tent party um, and, and have everybody in that tent uh, feeling as though they they belong in there. And I know that that is the party that I'd signed up for. That is the, the party that I was part of a government. And that was a party that um, was reflective of um, uh, was reflected f- for most of my time in in that tent, and um, I certainly do hope that that tent only grows as I make my exit. So, you know, one of the enduring and possibly, uh, you know, never to be answered questions about this, and it, it's it's connected to everything we've talked about, but it's the, it's Heather Stephenson's role in the campaign um, as leader and the. I think we we all accept that, you know, the Heather Stephenson that delivered the spring budget, that negotiated herself back into a certain amount of acceptance with the LGBTQ community after that small mishap with the Pride Day. But, you know, like your government came back super strong with lots of of bridges being built to that community and and they responded, you know, and uh, the same thing, like I, I remember the Heather Stephenson that uh, correctly, when no one else seemed to know that it was the obvious thing to do, negotiated the closure of the Prairie uh, Green mm-hmm. Landfill uh, and, you know, appeared and met with the families and appeared. So that Heather Stephenson. And then the one that we, you know, we eventually saw during the campaign. And so I guess that, you know, like you you did have an opportunity uh, the, on the, the morning of the day that we're recording this, you had a chance to meet with the premier and your cabinet colleagues, and you're still a cabinet minister, kind of, sort of, legally. So I won't ask you to betray cabinet confidentiality, but in general, um, do you think that Heather was comfortable 
with the decisions that were made in the campaign? Like, does she see that these were like, you know, at the time, these were the this was the best strategy we could come up with. And, you know, there's no doubt like she can't absolve herself of it. And I'm not trying to, you know, to 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 give her an opening to do that necessarily. But I think a lot of people want to know how she feels about it. And do, do you think that she feels, I don't know, comfortable with the, per, the person she had to be during the campaign? Honestly, I never asked. But what I will remember um, from this moment forward, and now that I've got... Um, you know, that the past campaign behind me and, and get to uh, move forward as a, a free, independent thinking member of society who's entitled to her own opinions and, and uh, all the privileges of being a unelected person. I will choose to remember a time when Heather Stephenson and I had met with the clan mothers and we had them down to the legislature and we sat in circle and we came up with funding for the healing village. And I will remember the time when Heather Stephenson and I met with uh, families of, uh, you know, that had been experiencing gender-based violence, and we um, gave them money for uh, for he- healing opportunities. I will think about the Heather Stephenson that approved $104 million more for um, people living with disabilities, the, the funding for the 24-7 safe space for sexually exploited women and girls called Velma's House. That is the Heather Stephenson that I um, worked with, that I had the honor of serving with, and that is how I will remember her. And I, I assume that you would have liked to campaign with that Heather as well. I absolutely um, think that she uh, has some wonderful parts of her legacy that uh, happened um, in her short time in government, and I certainly hope for her and her family's sake and uh, that she will remember them and hold dear to them because she did make a difference in, in, those, uh, in those ways and that was genuine. And so that is, that is what I will um, say and, and ch- that's how I will choose to remember my time in ser- serving with Heather in government. There was such a stark difference, though, in the campaign and then, you know, even seconds after the campaign's over and uh, Heather Stephenson's congratulating uh, Wab Canoe in the victory. I mean, just what a stark difference uh, in tone. And I think a lot of us, I, I am reading a lot of comments from different people within uh, particularly the Indigenous world, because I think the Indigenous world was really personally hurt by that campaign and felt very slighted that there would be such deep disrespect and that Indigenous women uh, would be weaponized or the, the remains of Indigenous women would be weaponized in such a way, again, are of my word. And and so, uh, you know, we've, we've there was such a stark difference in tone and it, it also comes across, I think, I think Manitoba is going to be sort of reflecting for a long time about whether that, I mean, when we're playing games and i'm using that's my word that when we're playing games political games we're really talking about real people's lives Mm -hmm. and uh if you really sincerely believed in what you said on the campaign it seems to almost cancel some of those things out or certainly challenge some of those things um because it might be people often remember 
uh, campaigns more than policy announcements. And that may be, I think, one of the challenges. But, you know, for you now, uh, you've got a next chapter, a chapter here where you're heading off to do something else. Uh, I think all of us are curious as to like, what where it? are you going to do? <laughs> What's yeah, this is, well, you, you, this is, you know, writing. like we, we work for a news organization, so <laughs> we can, let's make some news. Well, I, I regret to tell you that my future life will not be newsworthy in the least. So I have a new puppy. Uh, <laughs> she she needs to be trained and she needs to be walked. And so that will be me. You can find me with a ball cap on and some running shoes walking through Henteleff Forest with my dogs, with my kids, with my grandkids and uh, spending some much-needed quality time with my husband, who thankfully, for for one reason or another, decided to stick with me throughout this whole entire uh, chapter. And um, something that a lot of people don't know is that, so Daniel and I met in 2009, in 2007, pardon me, and we got married in eight, and in 2009 is when I began selling um, memberships. So politics has been the undertone of, of our marriage, uh, for better, for worse. And now my commitment was to um, move forward and, and close the close the book, if you will, on those memberships, close the close the book on that partisanship um, world and move into something much more calm, relaxing and less newsworthy. So um... I think we should uh, we should respect the fact that you don't want to have a high profile and newsworthy life beyond by uh, you know uh, wrapping up the interview. Uh, maybe the last interview you ever do. That would be really great if we could tell people this was the last <laughs> interview that that you ever did. I, I but your want, second appearance, yeah, the second appearance. appearance on the podcast. I do want to tell one. It's kind of a composite anecdote, but. You know, when, when, uh, the, the PCs were first returned to power in 2016, um, I remember bumping into you like 15 times in the evening at events. There was you and there was John Reyes. Mm-hmm. And you seem to be at that time almost the only people in the government that responded to invitations for somebody from government, you know, because it's, it's a big demand, like come in, bring greetings, cut a ribbon. Give you know, give an award or a certificate or something, and it always like it's one of those unseen things. Except like forty people at a time, and uh, you know, I was so impressed, and I always have been impressed with politicians that you know commit themselves twenty four seven. I mean, really, really, really public servant approach to politics. And uh, you know, I I, I really think uh, that you embodied that. That you you embodied the best of what it meant to be an elected public servant. And uh, I'm not going to forget it. And uh, you know, we'll have you on the podcast every once in a while just to remind <laughs> people how good you were at that. But uh, anyways, thank you so much for doing this difficult week, difficult time in a difficult week. And you're very generous, and uh, yeah, we're we're really glad you could come and talk to us. Miigwech and huge miigwech. Thanks for your time, and and uh, like I said before, it's I think it takes guts to show up, and I think it, it takes guts to take some hard questions, and I think we threw some stuff tough stuff at you today. So miigwech for your time. Well, thank you so much for having me on the show, and it really was a privilege to serve uh, this province for those seven and a half years, and. I had had an honor that so few people have had 
I was the 60th woman to get elected, and um, it was it was a, a real eye-opening experience. And I certainly hope that my time in office, I moved the needle on a few things, and uh, just a real honor. And I'm going to take all the happy memories with me and the lessons learned and move forward and, and have a, um, a less newsworthy life. But I will check in with you guys. And I am actually going to make good on that offer that you both extended to me that the next time I get to be the host and you two <laughs> are going to be the subjects. We, we are, un, unlike some of the ads in your uh, party's campaign, we are focus grouping uh, Rochelle and the Lone Ranger as we speak. And if the results, you know, come back, uh, positive. We'll, I'm out here. Yeah, we'll have, well, listen, Nigan, what I can tell you is we'll have a full discussion among everybody who can actually be in the city at the time. How's that? That sounds great. <laughs> sounds great to me. Yeah. Um, thank uh, you. Yeah, we had to come back. <laughs> yeah. Th- thank you very much again and best of luck with whatever you're doing. Thank you very much. Yeah, way to go. I wasn't going to bring up Rochelle and the Lone Ranger, but I. <laughs> I thought that was awesome. Sorry, buddy. Uh, who who loves you? Nico? Oh, I knew you were. I knew you were going to find some way. <laughs>